Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome everyone back as we are doing week five of our study of the book of Genesis, at least the early chapters of Genesis. And we've been trying to capture each week kind of a theme as we look through the story of, of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and hopefully make it to Genesis 3, we may not get that far this time, because we want to take these themes and say, now watch how this theme unfolds throughout the rest of the biblical story. So that's why we're kind of going so slowly. It's not like we're not going verse by verse, but we're like, we get to another passage and we're like, we have another topic. And the next topic is, oh, well, we need to unpack this one now. And so that's kind of what, what we've been doing. This week, we're going, to, we're going to look at the issue of Adam and Eve as ruling and subduing the earth. Now, we started, if you're just listening on the podcast, we started by watching the Bible Project video, The Royal Priests of Eden. Bible Project video, The Royal Priests of Eden. You can look that up on YouTube slash Bible Project, Royal Priests of Eden, or just go to their, go to their website. Now, anybody have any questions before we get started? No, we're good? Go with Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, which is going backwards a little bit, and then we'll move forward into chapter 2. So Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And if somebody wants to read that, please do so. Thank you very much, Anna. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Excellent. Thank you very much. So we, we've already talked a little bit about the passage. So we want, I'm not going to go into detail unless you have any questions on, on it, but we want to look at these words, rule and subdue. And it says, Let, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. So rule and subdue don't go hand in hand. This, what they're supposed to subdue is the it, which is the earth. And then they're supposed to rule over the creatures. So those are two different uh, responsibilities in a sense. One's subduing the earth and one's ruling over the creatures. So I put down in your notes, subduing the earth may suggest nothing more than agriculture. I mean, it's just like, okay, remember that. The curse in Genesis 3, when Adam and, Adam and Eve are cursed, it says, Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you not to, curse the ground because of you, until you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow for you and you shall eat the plants. So by the sweat of your brow, you, know, you shall eat bread. The idea was, Adam, the job that you have of subduing the earth is going to be made more difficult. It's going to be intensifying. You're going to have a lot more problems. Now note also in verse 28, Genesis 1, 28, and stop me anytime you want here. Verse 29. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth, and every tree uh, yielding fruit, which has fruits yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves in the earth, which has life, I've given every green plant for food. Now, if you stop and think about it, verse 30 kind of seems to be odd, because we're talking about the creation of mankind, of humanity, of Adam and Eve. Verse 26, let, God said, let us make man in our image. And we talked about how that's striking and it stands out because it's the first time God said, let us do it. All along, God did this, God did this, God did this. Now he's speaking to somebody else. And then, of course, he makes God makes man his own image. He blessed them in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, 
ruler by the fish of the sea. Verse 29, I, I've given you all the plants for, for food. And all of a sudden, verse 30, you're like, well, why are you telling us about the fact that the beasts and the birds also have every green plant for food? In this description of Adam and Eve and the formation of humanity, in this description of them subduing over the earth, why talk about the fact that the animals are also giving us, are also given green plants for food? One of the things that we have to think about is that the understanding that we take to the text because of our Sunday school answers or our, our, you know, just kind of our upbringing, maybe we filled in the text in ways that it's not supposed to be filled in. In other words, does it say here that for the beasts of the earth, they can only eat the green plants? It doesn't say that. It just simply says, oh, by the way, I also gave them green plants. It doesn't say that the lion is not Eating the, you know, eating the lamb. It, it doesn't say that. It, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So the question is, though, is, well, why even mention the fact that the animals are, and the birds are also given the green plants? I think the answer is because it's not just for us. In other words, hum humanity has to be reminded that when you subdue the earth, you're not subduing it for your own sake only. If subduing the earth is agriculture, if that's the primary meaning of it, grow plants and grow food. But remember, it's not just for you. Save some for the birds. Save some for the animals. Don't trample on their domain. What if our agriculture goes into a place where all of a sudden now the lion can't roam around any longer? Because we, as you know, there are, there are places in the world where villages are there and they're growing you know, coffee beans and all of a sudden the wild monkeys are in the area. And, and so you, you, yeah, okay, you have to build fences around that, but that, that endangers the monkey. There's a lot, all these questions are coming up, and I think the biblical text is saying, remember the fact that it's not for you alone. That's my thought. Rule means to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And this task of ruling is given to no one else. So exercising dominion. Now, this is another one of those things that's been heavily misused by, Christian, by Christianity. There are books that are written that says that this verse to rule and ex over the creatures and exercise dominion over the rest of creation is the reason why the creation is so bad because Christians have used this to wreak havoc and abuse upon creation. Now, that sounds really good. It's simply not true. The abuse and of creation is a result of the enlightenment and modernism industrial revolution, all of that fueled this mentality of let's harvest everything we can and make as many products as we can and you know, kind of the raping of the earth kind of mentality. Now, it's true that there have been some Christians who have jumped into that basket and have said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense because we're, you know, it's all about mankind. It's all about humanity. So the first fill in the blank then is, this is the role of image bearers. So the next fill in the blank then is, uh, dominion was not for the sake of ruling in itself, but for the well-being of that which they rule over. Task of, of exercising dominion was not for the sake of ruling in itself, but for the well-being of that which they rule over. To rule means to rule well. And of course, they are to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air it means that you have to rule over them well. 
And then to subdue the earth doesn't mean, of course, to rape it and things of that nature. It means to re remember that the animals get to eat too. And so it's not all for you. Every plant and every tree is for food. Every plant and every tree is for food. Now, Tremper Longman, some of you know Tremper, uh, he came up to Livermore one time and taught a course uh, for us on the Book of Psalms, I think it was, with us. Tremper is a preeminent Old Testament scholar, and one of his expertise is the Book of Genesis. So, the, so the, he's, he's in his own wheelhouse now. Here's what he says. If the purpose of Genesis 1, 29 and 30 was to restrict all diets to vegetation, one would expect to find restrictive language, saying things like, you shall eat only plants, or I give plants and not meat, end quote. If you read Genesis, just it's, it says, I'm giving you the plants. It doesn't say I'm giving you the meat. And the answer is, we don't know. It doesn't say he's not giving you the meat. And it doesn't say I'm only giving you the plants. And I think Anthony has a good point that he made earlier. By the way, dietitians do say that eating a plant-based diet is actually really, really healthy for you. <laughs> it just doesn't taste as good. <laughs> Can I offer another? Uh, of course. So just reading... Reading this now, it says, um, and everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Oh, okay. So green plants photosynthesize. They produce oxygen by fixing carbon dioxide. So they give us the, they give us the breath. They give us the oxygen to live by. So mm. that I'm just thinking, you know, food might be the, the breath, the oxygen. Mm. Oh, so interesting. Green plant. Yeah. So I just saw that and thought, huh, oh. you know, maybe. When I went to paramedic school, I don't remember where the stat came out, but it was something to the effect that the average American has somewhere in the ballpark of 12 to 16 pounds of undigested red meat throughout the entire intestinal tract. So it almost makes you wonder there again, and I'm not trying to superimpose science on the yeah, yeah. perspective, but there is a correlation there for most people that, that, it almost indicates that that's not the most ideal thing for our bodies. So. But that is interesting too. Yeah. Rob, I have, yep. a, I have a curiosity. I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but what about cannabis? Because I've heard that that is mentioned as a, as an herb in the Bible, very ancient herb that was yes. gifted to us. So I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that. So, it is in the scriptures. It's in, what is it, Rebecca's father-in-law or something like that was using it and things of that nature. I don't know that it's used in the scriptures of saying it's, it's approved or it's not, it's just mentioned. As far as using it, like in the American culture of legalizing it and things of that nature, I think, is that what you're kind of asking about? Just whether it's okay. I mean, it has certainly has certain medicinal properties that... right helpful so right and i think and the fact of certainly smoking it has all the the bad things that happen with smoking anything it's that, that's just, it's just not a good idea and the fact that it does affect the, the brain and the brain's development says i think that's not a good way to go but as far as um some of the oils and some of the cures and the fact that some people do have um, mental illnesses and things of that nature, where it's where it's helpful for them in certain contexts, I'd be I'd be open to that conversation. How's that? I, I wouldn't initially shut it down and say no, 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 don't, don't do that. I would be 
open to that as a conversation. Uh, but I think that's, I think there's a lot of factors that need to go into that are in play here, but not smoking it because of what I understand the fact that the serious health consequences for that. And the fact that there are other ways to get the positive effects from it without having to smoke it. And I, I'd be interested to hear your answer to that sometime, by the way, Helen, I'm not sure if you've, uh, if you study that or not in your profession or if you come across that. Um, so definitely young brain, it's not a good idea to, okay. to be smoking marijuana because of what it can do to the brain and development and can arrest development actually. And you can look at, you can look at um, MRIs of brains of youngsters and they look like the brains of old people mm. for the damage that it can do. So I agree with you on that. Um, and then, but I do see how it can be used orally right. or, um, and tinctures and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Anxiety for sleep it is not just the THC, but also the cannabinoids, which are, you know, the other compounds that aren't so psychotropic. So, yeah. See, I, you should just answer the question yourself without even asking me. <laughs> well, I'm just curious of it being, you know, being present in the, named in the bible that yeah but it, it being named is almost irrelevant because it's not named in a positive or negative context i don't it might even be more negative than positive and mm. and just there, there's no there's no it's not in a teaching of saying hey this is a good thing here we go let's go to chapter two now let's go to the chapter two verses 15 through 17 Genesis 2 15 through 17 and if somebody wants to read that and then we'll go through this then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Go through the fill in the blanks and fill and just kind of discuss this here. Man is put in the garden to cultivate and keep it. And again, your words and your translation might be different than mine. So Genesis 2.15, to cultivate and keep it. So what are your, I'm not sure what your translations might say there. Does that something different? To cultivate and care for it. Okay, cultivate and care for it. Till it and keep it. The hope is that your translation is going to translate those words consistently. Mine calls it an orchard. Not a really? Book. Yeah. What, what translation do you have? The Net Bible. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's usually a very good translation. So that's interesting. It's kind of appropriate because it's a garden. He brought them into it's in Eden. He took them into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So I put down in the notes. They're usually translated as serve and guard elsewhere in the Old Testament. And here's the key, and that is when these two words occur together. Whenever they occur together in the Old Testament, they refer to either the Israelites serving God and guarding the word. Or, and here's the most important one, and this is the fill in the blank, or to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle. In other words, these are priestly terms, priestly language. And they refer to priests who keep the service in the tabernacle. In other words, Adam is portrayed, or ultimately Eve eventually, but she's not in the story just yet. Adam is portrayed against the portrait of Israel's priests. And Adam, in other words, is brought into the garden, and the garden is a temple. We've already discussed this. The garden's a temple, and Adam and Eve are priests in that temple. And their job is to serve or guard the temple, to cultivate and keep, but the words can also mean to guard and keep. 
Again, they refer to either the Israelites serving and guarding something or to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle. That's why I said last week that you could read the story of what follows by saying Adam and Eve already failed when they let the serpent in because they were supposed to guard. That's what their job is, is to guard it. And they didn't guard it. And again, we're, it doesn't say that explicitly, but the fact that that's what these words mean suggests that that perhaps is kind of what, what's going on there. So let it be when these two words keep, occur together, they refer to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle. Adam is portrayed as, again, as a priest. The priestly obligations include the duty of guarding unclean things from entering. That's number two. Later priests were called guards, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 23. They're gatekeepers who keep watch so that no one should enter who is in any way unclean. So once Adam and Eve sin, now what you have, that's what we kind of did that brief thing on holiness a couple of a month or two ago. Because now to come into God's presence, you have these different stage, steps of holiness, and you have to be holy and holy and holy, and more and more and more holy as you get closer to the presence of God. So the priests are therefore guarding this and making sure that nothing unclean enters. The bottom line then becomes that man's put in charge of the earth uh, to care for and benefit the earth and the creation. And obviously that means including the animals. Let's go to the formation of Eve now in verses 18 through 25. And I think Jazz already started, but let's kind of go back and look at verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Thank you, John. Okay. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals, all of the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, made a woman from the rim, he had rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and shall be called woman. And she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Very good. So it was not good for man to be alone. This is the first time, of course, we hear something being not good. Of course, everything in, this, in, the, in the book of Genesis was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. But never, it was not good. So the answer is I'll make a helper suitable for him. And that's the fill in the blank letter B. But your translation might say something different. So whatever your translation says, got to try to be consistent with your own translation that you're using. But Verse 18, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is really subject to serious abuse. It's been tragic. So I wanted to make sure that we're clear. The word used for helper or help, a helper suitable for him, the word used for helper, this is point number one, is most frequently used for Yahweh and his relationship to Israel. In other words, God is Israel's helper because he is stronger. The word is most often used for Yahweh being the helper of Israel. So anyone that comes along and says, oh, Eve is just a helper to Adam, and Adam is therefore superior, 
is radically misunderstanding the text. If anything, you could argue that Eve is superior because the word helper implies equality or superiority, at least. And the answer is this. The context always tells you what the meaning of the word is. When the word's used for Israel's God and applying it to Israel, then it, obviously it means that God's superior to him. But when it's used for Eve to kind of come alongside Adam, it implies an equality between the two. It doesn't imply uh, superiority. So does that make sense? So the word is most often used for Yahweh's relationship to Israel. He is Israel's helper. So she will help Adam. And one of the ways that she's going to help is she's going to help him be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then the two become one flesh and they were naked and not ashamed. And the reason why they were not ashamed is because they're one. So when you go to chapter three, we're going to skip ahead for a second. When they sin, they realize, uh oh, we're not one. The unity has, the, the sin has created disunity within them. So remember John 17. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. The unity of humanity is the goal of humanity. And that's what was broken by the incursion of sin into the story. Okay, now, the first thing then is, is what does image bearing look like today? Based on one, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the formation of Adam and Eve, creation of man, putting them in the garden, giving them authority to rule and subdue, and the fact that they're priests in the temple garden, all this in mind, what does bearing God's image look like today? I'm not sure if I'm clear enough on the question. How does this apply? We bear God's image when we fill in the blank. Love others. Okay, that's the fundamental one, right? Of course, John 13, 35, that all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's certainly the, the, top, of the, the top of the mountain here. Ah, very good. Okay, so what John's done now with saying that is he's taken it. In other words, we, we typically think ethics. And that's where Anthony started. And the problem was that Anthony kind of gave like the best answer possible for the ethics side. So everybody else is thinking uh, there's nothing left to say. Because <laughs> if imaging God is simply ethical only, and if love is the supreme ethic, then we're done. Why is Rob asking for more answers if there, there are no more answers? But then John all of a sudden comes along and says, well, no, wait a second. When we do these acts, we're also imaging God. Because Adam and Eve were created to rule and subdue. And so John said, well, caring for the garden. And if subduing and caring for the garden was agriculture, then are we imaging God when we harvest grapes? When we plant grapes, right? Are we imaging God when we raise grain? Yeah, all right, something else or, or any other things that might be examples of imaging God. And I have a really significant point that I want to make here when we're done with this. So, well, maybe also when we put others' interests um, in how we work and play and live in our families ahead of our own. I think that's exactly correct, Derry. And I think that's a, a more nuanced way of saying love, though, right? I mean, uh, yeah, that's why I almost yeah. didn't say it. <laughs> no, no, because you're totally right, though. And, and what you're doing is you're simply, you're helping to define what love is. And I think that's always important because 
I've said for years that we throw the word love around, but then we don't define it. And the word love has to be defined. And cross-bearing love is laying down your life for the sake of the other, you know, considering others better than yourselves. That's an excellent contribution. So thank you. Something does, else. Does forgiveness come under love? Yeah, well, it is because love forgives. Humility is a big word too. Yep. All right, very good. Uh, Jackie, you look like you want to say something? Serving others. Okay, very good. Serving. What right, about good. children? Uh, yeah, well, being fruitful and multiply. We're not imaging God when we do that, but we're fulfilling the divine mandate when we do that. I guess if we go when we're creating. Yeah, okay, very good. When we're creating. Like, for example, what, what might we fill in that category of creating then? Artwork, sculpting, mm. poetry, dancing. Yes. Singing. Yes. Building. Right. Yeah, very good. Uh, thanks, Kirk. I heard you, Kirk. I heard you. Running <laughs> electrical wires in a house. Yes. Right? <laughs> and see, and okay, so now we're getting, we're going down a path. This is the direction I wanted to go down. Because what we do so often in Christian theology is we make a secular sacred divide. And what we do is we say, this is secular and this is sacred. And when we make a, sac a secular, secular sacred divide, we tend to think only the pastors and priests and religious leaders can do the imaging of God stuff. And I can do it on Sundays when I go to church. But imaging God is what all humanity was called to do. And we do that when we rule and subdue. Of course, when we rule well and subdue, so when we plant, when we harvest, when we grow crops, but, but God's also a creator. And so we image God when we create. An artist is imaging God. I said this to an artist one time. I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a, a seminar on, on arts. And, and, and they said, we've never had someone say this before because we've always felt that the church was not a place where we could be artistic. It's like, if there's anyone that's imaging God, it's an artist. A musician who's writing a song, a painter who's painting a painting, uh, someone uh, who's composing music. That's, that's art. That's creating, imaging God at the finest level. So does that make sense? So the, the point of that is, is that when you go to your secular job, quote unquote, you're still, you're not imaging God when you tell them about Jesus. You're not only imaging God when you love them and invite them to church. You're imaging God when you work. Now that, of course, depends on whether or not your work is reaping destruction on the creation or whether or not it's furthering uh, our ability to subdue the earth. So I'll show you a quick verse on this and then we'll move to the next topic unless you have a question. Uh, Revelation, Revelation 11, to get the context, we'll start in verse 15, Revelation 11, 15, but the verse that I'm looking for is verse 18. And I've never seen a meaning other than what I'm applying to it here that makes sense. So it seems like I'm taking this a little bit out of its context, but as much as I've grappled with Revelation chapter 11, I think this is correct. So verse 15, it says, Seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the end. This second coming of Christ, whatever you want, the new Jerusalem coming down to heaven, it's the end. The 24 elders fall on their faces and they worship God in verse 16. And then they started saying in verse 17, we'll give you thanks. Oh, Lord God, the Almighty, because you are and you were. No, by the way, if you, in the book of Revelation, it says you are, you were, and you are to come. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Notice it doesn't say the one who is to come here. Because he's come. This is the end. And you've taken your great power, verse uh, 17, and be, have begun to reign. 
well, the nations were enraged. Well, and your wrath came, because it's, it's also Judgment Day. Time came for the dead to be judged, to give the reward to your bondservants, the prophets. He's going to judge the dead, but he's also going to give his reward to the prophets and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. It almost sounds random. It's the day of reckoning. It's the day of the new creation coming down. And it's a day of justice and a day of reward. And it's going to reward the bondservants, the saints, and the, and the prophets, and, and all those who are faithful. And it's also going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And I think applying it in the Genesis context makes sense. I, I haven't seen anything that says this is not correct here. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, um, to your point, I wanted to bring this up, but then I thought, no, I might be reaching here, but this is kind of more Helen's realm. But I'm reflecting in the garden, and they were supposed to keep the serpent out part of discussion last week. Mm-hmm. Are not boundaries possibly part of what we're supposed to do as well? In other words, we see the land being devastated. We see the forest being torn down. We right. see things here on earth that are an absolute travesty to the garden. Are we not supposed to say, hey, there's a boundary here? We yeah. need to be advocates for ecological justice and, and yep. wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know some of you might not agree with this or whatever. And I've asked you in the past to give me the freedom to say things you didn't like to hear and you might not agree with. And we can discuss it and go back and forth. And I could be wrong. But I am flabbergasted. I have no other word for the fact that sometimes Christians come up on the issue of, of creation care on the side of saying, no, 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 we can, we can rape the earth all we want. And we can, we can harvest. We have dominion over the earth. I'm thinking that is the absolute opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. And according to the biblical text, it says you are to care for it. That's why I pointed out in verse 29 or whatever it was in Genesis to say, why would it make reference to the fact, oh, by the way, I gave the plants for the animals too, because we're not supposed to ruin their habitats or to make sure that there's a habitat for them also. And, and what's ironic to me, and this is, again, my whole, I'm giving opinions here now, and that is that it's big business and big corporations who have the motive to destroy the forest. They make profit off of this. And I think that should cause us to go, yeah, yeah, you know, let's stop here for a second and let's reevaluate. So again, one more anecdote. When I, I grew up in this age that said environmental concerns were tree huggers and mother earth lovers and new agers, if that word's no longer in vogue nowadays, but the idea of Hindu religion in America. And it was worshiping the earth and worshiping the mother earth. And I'm thinking, no, we are supposed to care for the earth because God gave us the authority, responsibility to care for it. So I think this is just a huge issue. And I'm flabbergasted that Christians, I, th- I think, come up on the wrong side of this, uh, this discussion so often. But anybody else have a thought or a comment? Is that what we would refer to more of a dispensationalist point of view that the earth will be destroyed? And so why even take care of it? It's because yep. God's going to take us to heaven and that's where we're going to live eternity. And that's the end. So it's not, it's not a dispensationalist view, although dispensationalists often hold that view. They do go together. In fact, um, President Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, James Watt, who was Secretary of the Interior, meaning his responsibility was to care for the, the plants and the trees and the forests and everything else in, in the United States, said, it's all going to burn up someday anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And you're like, it often goes with that theological understanding of, yeah, it's all going to be burned up. It's like, no, being burned up is refining with judgment of fire. It doesn't mean it's literally going to be destroyed by fire. Um, I think those are 
things that people say to thwart the responsibility and mm-hmm. um, disregard responsibility. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. that's just what I think. I think it's just throwing yeah. away responsibility of actually truly caring for everything that exists. And yep. also do that. You aren't caring for anyone coming after you. And you're not yes. really showing yes. that love that is not the act of love. Yes. I'm not sure if everyone understood exactly what Jazz was getting at. I think you have. But it, the answer is we're leaving this place in a really bad pl- place for our grandkids, our kids and our grandkids. And this is not a good thing. Let's also point this out. So they've talked about, well, getting to like zero net carbon by this year, this year, this year. And, you know, we need to get all these other countries on board. The reality is there are some countries in the Orient and in, in the Far East, especially where coal is what they use for their heat. And so now, so the first thing becomes this, if you start saying, well, coal is really bad for the environment, we need to stop coal, coal mining. That's just, well, you're putting people out of jobs. So you have to, so yeah, there is an economic impact of that and people, and people make a profit on that, but you also have people have jobs with that. So immediately you're gonna have people in the coal mines going, no, 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 and right, we gotta to listen to this and figure out how to, how to work this out, uh, number one. Uh, secondly, you have some countries that are coal dependent if you simply said you can't burn coal anymore, the people would die because they have no way of heating their homes. And so you have to figure out another a, a way of getting them to be non-coal dependent. And then other things, by the way, I don't, some of you guys obviously from the Bay Area know, outside of Livermore on the hills of, of the East Valley, uh, it used to be the largest uh, wind farms in the world. Right? I don't know if it is any longer, but more windmills in that one area than anywhere else in the whole world. Well, those windmills, of course, create clean energy, but they kill the raptors. The birds think they can fly through those things and they get nailed all the time. There are ways to create clean energy also actually can be detrimental to the environment also. So. The other thing I, I get kind of tired of hearing is uh, climate change. Every other word on the news is climate change. So, well, of course, the climate changes all the time. So yeah. I, I, just, I just got a real, I don't know. We can probably talk about that another time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let me let t- Tim comment, and then I'll and then well, with, I, I with just, you know, the hypocrisy yeah. in it. We're, we're we're making these electric cars because we want to uh, reduce the carbon. But the fact is that fossil fuels that's keeping the, the grid going, mm-hmm. and right? So because we've got yeah, we need all the all the uh, nuclear plants that were probably pretty clean, so we've we've gone back in stage. But how are you going to manage that? You know, right. So yeah, we're doing electric cars, but. It's going to go and on the not grid. to mention how bad for the environment making and destroying batteries is. Yeah, go ahead. Something else. There's a whole documentary video on this, and it is just sad because okay. we put all this energy and effort into solar panels, and they will tell you that solar panels are made out of silica, sand. That's that's true to a point, but there's also hydrocarbon products that go into the production of solar panels, and solar panels have about a 15 year high-end 20-year lifespan there's mm. going to come a point in time when we're going to have a flood of non-recyclable materials so oh. this whole premise and and what the, the documentary says is that we're just taking the shift from one major mm. industry which is the oil industry and repackaging it so that it can continue to roll on in a different facet but we aren't really making a difference in the overall global dynamic interesting interesting yeah. interesting and let me give you an anecdote that kind of comments on chris's thought there as well all right so I grew up in a tradition, some of you obviously did as well, that it's culture wars and, and the Bible's you know, always in danger and the, world, the Christian worldview is always in danger and a threat from 
atheists and for communists and from socialists and all these different things. And of course, science is agnostic or atheistic science is trying to, and so we don't trust it because its premises are false. That, that's kind of the world that we grew up in. And so it was untrusted. And of course, the response that I gave, and I remember believing this was well in the 1990s, when it, uh, 80s and 90s, when global warming started coming out, becoming an issue was, oh, come on. We used to have an ice age, folks. Of course, climate changes. It just changes all the time. It's the natural uh, vicissitudes of life and what have you. That's kind of the way we answered it. And we rejected the science behind it. So there, there are kind of three major academic uh, for theological scholars. There are three major societies. There's the American Academy of Religion that's really far left, really what we would consider very liberal. There's the Evangelical Theological Society that's really far right, very, very conservative. Your Baptist schools and a lot of very fundamentalist schools, um, their professors all go to the Evangelical Theological Society. In the middle, uh, there's a couple of them, but the Society of Biblical Literature, which kind of runs more to the left, but it's kind of in the middle. And, and so scholars are kind of Scholars attend these, these annual conferences. They actually usually have them all together in the same week, a week and a half or whatever in the same city every year. And you can kind of go to these, these conferences. I say that because the Evangelical Theological Society, about five years ago, maybe, maybe six, maybe seven, or maybe three, or maybe four, whatever it might be, had as its annual theme, creation care. And I was really surprised because remember, this is far right Evangelical Theological Society. Creation care was on the docket. And what they do at the conference it goes from like uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and there's four major speakers who give major sessions. Then you have all these breakout sessions all day long. And at the end of the at the end of the conference, all the speakers of the what do you call that the the panel when everyone's there, whatever you know what I mean. The panel when everyone's there. All right, those four main speakers were all sitting on the platform. Then at the end of, at the end of the day and the last day there, having a panel discussion and a Q and A discussion between them all. Uh, I think there were five of them. The plenary sessions, that's what it's called, right? The plenary sessions. The plenary sessions where everybody's there, the plenary speakers. Four of the plenary speakers at the Evangelical Theological Society were advancing, saying global warming is legitimate. We need to listen to the scientists. Absolutely no question at all. And only one of the five said, it's farce, don't believe it. It's atheistic scientists and da, 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 da. And these four were going head to head, or the five of them were going in a panel discussion. I was actually overwhelmed because I know how conservative and how far right the Evangelical Theological Society was. I'm like, okay, look, they're admitting it. Now, the problem is this. Those professors at the Evangelical Theological Society were not going to go back to their colleges and seminaries and say anything about it at all. Because evangelical seminaries and colleges are funded by and supported by far right donors who say, this is all farce, don't listen to it. And so I'm here on the insides going, look, even the, the theological scholars are acknowledging that the science behind, and I'm not a scientist, so it's almost, I'm just kind of reporting to you what I saw and what I've heard. The science behind global warming is legitimate. And I think this is my own personal thought that it seems to be playing out with the increase in massive storms and superstorms. I don't think it's a farce. That's just my thought. Um, and I think it's something that we need to think about. And I think what Jazz said earlier about the fact that we're leaving this planet in a really bad place for the next generation and next generations to come. So I think that's something we can, we can serve. I had so much more tonight too, and now we're running low on time that I wanted to get to. I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you one of the passages. I'm not going to read it, run us through it. So some of you have seen this discussion before. In John 20, Jesus rises from the dead. This is the resurrection chapter of John 20. In verse 1 and in verse 19. So I'll say it again. John 20, verse 1 and John 20, verse 19. 
twice in the same passage, it says, on the first day of the week. Now, on John 20, verse 1, to say on the first day of the week, no big deal. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. No big deal. We don't need him to tell us the resurrection happened on Sunday because John's gospel is written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke already. We kind of know that. But why does he repeat it 18 verses later in verse 19 and say on the first day of the week? It's like, we already know what day of the week it is. The point, of course, is, is John's gospel begins with in the beginning, right? That's the first three words of John's gospel. And John's telling us about the new creation. And so the resurrection of Jesus is happening on the first day of the new creation week. And the fact that we know that is evidenced by the fact that he repeats the first day of the week. Now, if you go a little bit further in verses 21 and 22, it says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word for breathed on them is the exact same word used in Genesis 2, in the Greek version, of course, of Genesis chapter 2, when God breathed on Adam and he became a living being. Jesus is giving them the spirit, is making them new creations. Now, here's what's so incredible about the story. New creation, it's the first day of the week. It's breathing on them. It's using the same language of Genesis 2, verse 7. God breathed on Adam and he became a living being. Jesus breathes on the disciples and they become filled with the spirit. And in the middle of there, there's a story where they run to the, t- the tomb. The guys get there like, oh, they can't find him. They walk away. Mary's sitting there and she's all distraught. And Jesus appears to her and he's like, well, who are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says, supposing he was the gardener, she didn't recognize who it was. And then Jesus said, Mary. Now, remember in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they know who I am. As soon as he spoke to her and said, Mary, but she thought he was the gardener. And one last thing, I keep saying one last thing. John's gospel is the only gospel that says that that the tomb of Jesus was in a garden. So he's in a garden tomb and Mary thinks he's the gardener. And it's the first day of the new creation week. And he imparts the spirit. It's no, it's Jesus is Adam. Of course, Adam glorified and perfected. And he's the true Adam. He's the divine. He's the God became man, Adam. The other one, I've been wanting to read the passage like, 10 times, and we're going to have to do it next week because we have to read the passage, but it's 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll look at the reference later, but if you get a chance, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 17, and I want you to look at that, look at those verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 17, and I guess I'll leave it as a question instead of telling you the answer, and that is, what kind of imagery is this? What is Paul using as an imagery? He's describing the church, but he's describing it in some particular way, so I'll kind of leave it at that, Okay. With that, what, what verse was that? First uh, Corinthians 3, verses 6 through Thank 17. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.